Father God, thank you for uh, the opportunity to worship you together this morning. We thank you for the miracle of the incarnation, for sending your son for us. We thank you for your gospel and the hope we can have because of you. We ask, Lord, that as your word is preached, that you would be glorified and that we would be edified and that you would stir up our affections by your Holy Spirit to take what is in your word to heart and to be inspired to live lives lived for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Merry Christmas, everybody. It is still the Christmas season. Hope you guys had a great time celebrating with your family over the week. And I'm so glad to see you all here despite the heartbreak experience at the loss of the Buckeyes. Oh, my goodness. What a game. Tragic, right? Heartbreaking. But we can still rejoice because Jesus is king, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So there is joy even in the sorrow. Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, please turn to Isaiah chapter 62, verses 1 through 5. It's Isaiah chapter 62, verses 1 through 5. Well, I don't know if you guys know this about me, but I'm a, a crazy Star Wars fan. All right? like, I'm a nerd about Star Wars. And in the hit new series, The Mandalorian, we get to see a side story in Star Wars where we see that power comes from unlikely places. If you aren't familiar with The Mandalorian, that's okay. It's a story which traces a bounty hunter as he goes across the galaxy seeking to protect this mysterious little child affectionately known in the social media world as Baby Yoda. Okay? <laughs> I don't know if you guys know Yoda, but he's a little green guy, you know, uh, in the original Star Wars series. Yeah, so... Baby Yoda is about as normal as a little green alien child could be, right? Except for one thing. Baby Yoda can manipulate the world around him using this mysterious thing called the Force. Well, what is the Force, you may ask? The Force is like this invisible power structure, this energy field that is in the Star Wars story, right? And those who are trained to use the Force can hone it and use it for either good or evil. Well, as you might imagine, if a small child can wield this power, it captures the attention of characters and institutions in the story, which leads to an exciting story of mystery, conflict, and all sorts of intergalactic exploits. Such a little baby, so much power. Because in the great timeless stories that we all enjoy, power comes from unlikely places. It threatens to overturn the established way, right? This kind of power changes everything, and that's what our passage is about today. Not about Baby Yoda, but about power from unlikely places. So through the Advent season up till now, we've been looking at the kingdom of God, right, and what Isaiah has to say about it, and we're going to continue to do that today as we look at Isaiah 62 verses 1 through five. What we'll see is that the kingdom of God is real, personal, intimate, up close, tangible. That the kingdom of God is redemptive. It fixes things, right? And the kingdom of God is restorative. In this kingdom, all things are made new. Well, just to get a little bit of context, you know, Isaiah is a really big book, right? There's a lot of ground 
covered in the book of Isaiah. And the history behind Isaiah 62 specifically is a promise given to God's people upon their return to Jerusalem. See, God has just allowed these exiles to return home. And what we learn in other books of the Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah, is that this is a really difficult task. It's not easy. Yes, they're back, but nothing is really mended or restored, right? So it becomes a crisis of faith for these people. And this original audience of Isaiah's book has a lot in common with the people of the first Christmas, right? Who also experience a crisis of faith, right? Watching, waiting, where, where is this Messiah? Because there's a new power over the people of God now, over this Jewish world, right? And it's not the Messiah, it's Rome and petty kings like Herod. So it's as if they've arrived, right? They've come to the end of this journey, and yet they're still not really home, right? It hasn't really been restored. Have you ever gotten to the end of something and thought to yourself, like, is that it? Is that all that there is to this? Or you come to the end of a journey, and you may be home, but something has happened or something is different that makes you feel like, you know, I'm not really home at all. We wonder, where is God? Where is this, these promises of restoration and mending that we see in Scripture? And is God going to keep that promise at all? Right? Well, that's the sad state of God's people on that first Christmas, and that tends to be how our lives go, doesn't it? Where we wonder what will happen next. Where is God in all this? So as we dig into this passage together, I want us to look at this, these verses in Isaiah as a people who are waiting, because that's what we are. We're a people who are waiting, just like those who would have been reading the prophecies of Isaiah in the first Christmas. And I think we'll see from this passage a few realities about the gospel, which are in Isaiah, which give us a promise of this kingdom established in Christ at his first coming and the consummation when Christ comes again, right? Promises that have implications for us today. So let's dig in. Starting at verse 1. For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. Well, at the time that Isaiah is writing this, the people of God are accusing God of being silent and apathetic. The exile spanned over 50 years, so it kind of makes a little bit of sense to feel abandoned, doesn't it? Can you imagine spending a whole lifetime thinking, or being in exile, or being, having 50 years of feeling like God has abandoned me, that I am not being cared for by God, he's forgotten me. Maybe you feel that way now. Maybe something in your life is making you wonder, am I in some sort of this spiritual or emotional exile? Am I, am I abandoned by God? But God hadn't abandoned them, and he doesn't abandon us either. See, deliverance is coming, and in God's economy, in his sovereignty, deliverance is already here. His purposes are always accomplished. His will is always perfect and achieved according to his sovereign power. It kind of reminds me of something... Uh, that Gandalf says in Lord of the Rings, you know, he says, uh, a wizard is never late, he arrives exactly when he intends to, right? 
Everybody familiar with that? Well, you know, God is never late either or early. His timing and his will are always perfect. And that's what God's people are being reminded of when they're told that even in all this, God's not silent. He's not quiet. And there is a purpose to this. There is a will here. So what is God's will for his people? We see it at the last half of verse 1, right? Until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. So his will is the righteousness and salvation of his people. See, God's not the God of chaos and destruction, though this often seems to be what we experience in the world, right? The world is chaotic. The world is frustrating. There's loss and there's pain and there's suffering. Destruction happens. But even then, God is in the business of restoring and redeeming his people. And that's the great recreation which begins at the arrival of Christ in the incarnation. Let's continue to verse 2. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. So there's like this movement that, um, it's only a couple hundred years old, and it really took off in the mid-20th century uh, at the publishing of the Left Behind series, right? So in the Left Behind series, what we see is a story of this moment when all of a sudden Christians around the world disappear. They're gone. And what happens to those who are left behind? Well, the world becomes chaos, right? And it spins out of control. And people are wondering, what happened? Where, what, what, what is that? He was here one moment, now he's gone. And it makes for a scary story, but I don't think that that's the way that the kingdom arrives as we see it in scripture here, right? Rather than a secret rapture, what we see is a public kingdom, in these verses, which leads to our first point, that the kingdom of God is real. Seems simple enough, right? The kingdom of God is real. Far from a kingdom that's separate from the created order, God's kingdom becomes the center of commerce and human activity in this new creation. Look at Isaiah's wording. All the nations shall see your righteousness, and all the kings your glory. There comes a day when everybody knows what's going on here, right? There's no doubt. All doubt is removed, right? Jesus is king. He's reigning on his throne. And all other powers and principalities and people, rich or poor, no matter where you come from or who you are, see that Jesus is king and his kingdom is real. It's personal, right? And up close. It's intimate. The kingdom of God is so intimate that the king not only knows your name, but we see in verse 2, he names you himself. It's pretty cool. Let's continue to the third verse. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. So when I read this passage, I kind of see verse 3 as like this linchpin verse of the gospel message in this passage where the, the focus kind of changes a little bit, Okay. So let's, let's think about this. Let's put our first century um, Jewish hats on. We're um, being persecuted by Rome, right? So any good Jew around the time of the first Christmas would have known these prophecies, right? They're, they're familiar with the teachings of Scripture. They know the promise of a Messiah. But here we are. We've been returned from exile a long time ago. 
right? Isaiah wrote this a long time before the first Christmas, and yet there's a new power running things in the Jewish world, but it's not the Messiah, right? It's Rome, and so it would beg the question, right? If you're experiencing this, where is the Messiah? How can we be a crown in the hand of God when we're treated, once again, as exiles? How can Christ, how can the Messiah be Lord if Caesar is, right? Well, meanwhile, as we're asking these things, as first century Jews in a town called Bethlehem, there's a newborn baby crying, right? And a young mother and her husband gaze lovingly into the eyes of a newborn baby boy. When a child is born, our thoughts tend to wonder at what might this child be, right? We think, oh, they might be a successful athlete. Maybe they're going to be a Heisman winner, right? Maybe they're going to be prolific authors. Maybe they're going to be well-to-do business professionals, something successful, something, like, great, right? And we wonder, and we let our minds wonder. Think of all the possibilities. Well, these parents know exactly who they're looking at, right? They're looking at the Messiah, and they know this because Mary and Joseph have both been told by angels that this little boy is Jesus. He's Emmanuel, God with us, and he will raise, he will be raised up perfect, and then he will die for the sins of the whole world and conquer sin and death through that death, rising again so we can all follow after him. So as a fearful nation is wondering, where is this Messiah that will establish the kingdom and restore the land in the most obscure way it could be? The Messiah has already come, right? There he is. He is there, and he will restore the land, as promised in Isaiah. The kingdom was at hand. But he did not come like the Maccabees or like other rebels and insurgents who tried to free the people from oppression, right? No, the Messiah came as an innocent baby boy, born to a blue-collar family, not with the sword and a shield, but wrapped in swaddling cloth, right? This king will exchange the crown of beauty that Isaiah is talking about in this passage for a crown of thorns. And by his sacrifice, traitors, rebels against the kingdom of God, are then made those crowns of beauty and royal diadems in the hand of God because of what he did. And brings us to our second point. The kingdom of God is redemptive. The kingdom of God is redemptive. He came as an innocent child, born to reign in peace and to save us from our sins. That's redemption. Our relationship with God made right. The penalty for our wrong paid by the sacrificial lamb of God, by the Messiah. This kingdom of God is unlike anything we could ever have seen, right? It defies worldly sensibility. It comes from an unlikely family in an unlikely way. And how does he make things right? By dying. God made man dying for us and then rising up again. John Chrysostom, an ancient Uh, Church Father puts this beautifully in his old sermon about the nativity, about Jesus' birth, when he writes, Behold a new and wondrous mystery. My ears resound to the shepherd's song, piping no soft melody, but chanting full forth a heavenly hymn. The angels sing, the archangels blend their voice in harmony. The cherubim hymn their joyful praise. The seraphim exalt his glory. 
all joined to praise this holy feast, beholding the Godhead here on earth and man in heaven. He who is above now for our redemption dwells here below, and he that was lowly is by divine mercy raised. Bethlehem this day resembles heaven, hearing from the stars the singing of angelic voices, and in place of the sun, enfolds within itself on every side the sun of justice. And ask not how, for where God wills the order of nature yields. For he willed, he had the power, he descended, he redeemed, all things yielded in obedience to God. So even now, as we're again a people waiting for Christ to come again, he's already reigning, not as a baby, but as the resurrected sacrifice for us. The king that dies for traitors, who conquers death for traitors, and then is risen again so that we can have peace in him while he reigns forevermore. And that's the mystery right, of the kingdom of God, that the Messiah would come not as a dominant tyrant, but as a little baby, raised as a lamb to slaughter for you and for me. Because the kingdom of God is redemptive. Let's wrap this up with verses 4 and 5. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Our last point is that the kingdom of God is restorative. The kingdom of God is restorative. You know, throughout the story of scripture, there's like this narrative arc, right? There's creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Well, what does that mean? Well, we have creation, right? We have that story in the Garden of Eden, right? God makes all things and calls it good. But then what happens? Well, Adam and Eve sin against God, fracturing that relationship. That's called the fall. And in that fall, we are born into a fractured relationship with God as well. So we move from there in the situation of fallenness to the great story of redemption, which is really what we're celebrating at the Incarnation, right? When Jesus has come, he's come for our redemption, and he lives the perfect life that we couldn't live, dies for us, conquers sin and death, and is risen again. Right? That's redemption. But So what's restoration? Well, restoration is all things made new. Right? These relationships are reconciled, but we're waiting for something more. And what is that? That is the renewing of all things, of creation, and the, and not the uh, consummation of the kingdom of God, where all people know exactly who the king is. And there's a promise of restoration in verses 4 and 5, aren't there? We'll look at the words used to describe the people of God. You know, the people of God are called a lot of things in Scripture. Most of them, not that great, right? We, let's see, a few off the top of my head. You got whore, forsaken, desolate, ignorant, arrogant, stiff-necked, right? All these things to describe the people of God. And the list goes on and on. Because our relationship with God is broken because of us, not because God broke any promises. But look at the restoration happening here. It's God saying, I'm making all things new. No longer forsaken or desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her. See, we're no longer a whore, but the bride of Christ. No longer a fractured relationship, 
but rather we become the joy, the delight of the Lord. And this mystery of the incarnation, this glorious nativity, is that God came as one of us that we might be like him. In the birth of his son is the opportunity for new birth. At the coming of God's kingdom, we are restored. See, the kingdom of God is real. Personal, intimate, physical, not just an abstract idea, right? The kingdom of God is redemptive. In the kingdom of God, through Christ, our relationship with God and with one another is restored. It's fixed, mended. And the kingdom of God is restorative. God makes all things new, including us. So Advent's over, right? We're well into Christmas tide now. But even now, we're still a people who are waiting. And this is the story of the people of God since the time of the fall. Watching, waiting, hoping for the promised redemption and the consummation of the kingdom of God. But as we prepare for Holy Communion together, I think God teaches us something significant through the miracle of the Incarnation and in these verses that we've read from Isaiah, that God has kept His promises, that God has established His kingdom, that it's here. And like we said earlier, amid the suffering and the pain, amid the watching and the waiting, and the confusion and the hopelessness, the kingdom of God is at hand. And when we really live into that reality, right, it changes the way that we view things around us, right? Yeah, life is hard, right? Can we agree that? Do we all have bad days? Yeah, bad days. Life can suck, right? Pain is real, and it's hard, and I'm not trying to undervalue that here, okay? It's a big deal. Life is difficult. But when we look at the kingdom for what it is, God's recreative power working through us now, we have something great that we get to experience, and that's the abundant life that Christ promises. What is abundant life in the midst of pain, right? What's resting in the promises of God, resting in the hope of the kingdom, that Jesus loves you, that life has purpose, that Christ will come again. See, it is an entire reshaping of our identity because no matter what the world tells us about gender, about race, about our success, about anything, no matter what the world says, if we're in Christ, our identity is in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And we can rest in that promise of deliverance in the kingdom of God even today. Because long ago, in a little manger in Bethlehem, the promises Isaiah has proclaimed in these verses were fulfilled. And one day the whole world will know it as every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that even now you're reigning and that we can rest in that hope. As we continue to worship, Lord, we ask that you would fixate our hearts on you by the power of your Holy Spirit, that this would be a time when you're lifted high. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.